0: It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progressive Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey.
0: And I'm Dr. Davidson.
1: Uh, So in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, thyroid, uh, specifically free T3. Uh, As I mentioned in the last episode, actually, our most popular blog or podcast actually is Do I Have Low Free T3 Level? Um, That one is um, getting a—we didn't—I think we recorded that, I don't know, maybe what, three or four months ago or something, and it's been getting a very wonderfully a nice amount of traffic, which is great to see from an analytics perspective. Uh, So this question we got is from Kelly. Uh, Dr. Davis, would you like to read the question?
0: Sure. So this is from Kelly. She writes, My thyroid labs are all within normal range, but I feel so depleted. My free T3 has never tested above 2.3, and I have type 1 diabetes and celiac disease. I know my body is prone to be difficult and function lower on some levels than most, but how can I fix my free T3 levels if they're low and my doctor says they're not treatable low.
1: Yeah. So that last part, you know, it's not treatable, whatever. That's just, to be honest, that's just conventional ignorance. Free T3, this is why we talk about, this is why we made a podcast called, Do I Have Low Free T3 Levels? Because this is something that we see all the time. Uh, No one ever tests it. No one ever pays any attention to it. The only thing doctors really do, now doctors are starting to look at antibodies. So anti-TPO and anti-thyroglobulin to screen for Hashimoto's. But even if someone has those antibodies, they still don't do anything different. The medication they prescribe is still the same thing. We want to know whether they have the antibodies. And she did mention, Kelly mentioned she has celiacs and type 1 diabetes. I would guarantee that she has Hashimoto's as well. So if Kelly has not had her antibodies tested, that's what she should have tested just to know because celiacs is a autoimmune condition that and Hashimoto's kind of have a, a, you know, a fairly specific correlation with each other.
0: And most of our listeners, you know, know about free T3 and free T4 and TSH, probably more than their conventional doctor (laughs) knows. But just to kind of reiterate so, a free T3 level is pretty much the active form of thyroid. So, our thyroid pretty much makes T4, which travels in the bloodstream and peripherally will convert to free T3. Free T3 is a very unstable molecule. It's got a short, short half life, but it does pretty much everything. So, when you're, what Kelly's feeling kind of, probably upset about because she notices that she has not only these symptoms of feeling so depleted, but her T3 levels are low as well. Is that it could be that her T4 isn't converting to T3, or it could be a little bit with some of her diagnosis and some of her treatments. But in what's interesting, like not that I want to, you know, bag on her doctor or anything. I'm sure he he or she is really trying hard to help her, but they always go by these reference ranges. So the reference ranges for free T3 and Quest, it's like 2.2 to 4. Point, no, 2.2 to 4.2 for Quest and LabCorp, I think, is two to 4.4. But let's say her free T3 at 2.3 is at 1.7. I see that all the time too. What would her doctor do then? You know, a lot of times they just really don't know what to do when someone has a low free T3 level, but they still feel like they're, they're, they have all the symptoms of it.
1: Yeah. So when they say that it's not treatable, what that means really is that they're giving them one of three medications, either giving them lavoxyl, Levothyroxine, or Synthroid. That is, as we've talked about in the past, that is what they call T4 monotherapy. Now in from a conception standpoint, or from an idea standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. You give the body T4; the body converts it. You know, really, sixty percent of the conversion of T4 to T3 occurs in the liver. Okay, now so she's got celiac disease, which puts some stress in the liver. She's got type one diabetes, which puts some stress in the liver. In general, uh, so that is going to make that conversion process going from T4 to T3 significantly more difficult. Okay, so right off the bat, that is kind of a you know kind of a uh, something that's working against her not to mention type 1 diabetes so the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes type 2 diabetes is the epidemic of the 21st century right that's 90% of the diabetes cases Type 1 diabetes is usually diagnosed as a juvenile. So more than likely, Kelly um, probably was, was diagnosed under the age of 20. You know, a lot of times under the age of 10, um, they get diagnosed relatively early and they're they're put on insulin right away. They're insulin-dependent diabetics. Okay? So they have to take insulin. So what she doesn't say here, um, and this is a big part of thyroid function, is um, she's taking insulin. So what are the units of insulin she's taking on a daily basis? Some people they dose it themselves. Some people have a pump. I'm not really a fan of the pump because the pump, when you're using a pump, it's not specific enough, you know, to really kind of fine tune. And everyone that is a type one diabetic, not everyone, but the majority of them are are taking too much insulin. Okay, so uh, this is kind of a roundabout, but this is, goes for. Um, people that are not even diabetic, improving insulin status is a way to improve thyroid function. So for her, her number one goal is to monitor and manage blood sugar, but that should be by using the least amount of insulin on a daily basis as possible. So that is where the diet and lifestyle piece comes into play. So she doesn't have to keep injecting, injecting, injecting more and more units of insulin because that'll just make her thyroid lower and lower
0: and lower. So with you know, with Kelly, she's also saying she has celiac disease, which we took a little jump there and said more than likely she probably has Hashimoto's. And Hashimoto's is where the immune system it's an autoimmune component where the immune system attacks your thyroid and it will creates all these antibodies and attacks the thyroid and inevitably that thyroid function de- decreases and decreases and decreases and what we found with Hashimoto's over people with just generalized low thyroid is when you keep that thyroid especially that T3 a little bit higher on the you know on the high end of normal it tends to reduce that autoimmune component of the Hashimoto so it calms it it re- you can clearly see when someone's T3 comes up that it reduces down those antibodies. But when that T3 drops down or somebody's not on the proper medication or they're not treating their Hashimoto's properly, then you see those antibodies go up and up and up. And with Hashimoto's, yes, you have lots of symptoms of hypothyroid, but there's a whole bunch of other symptoms that go along with it as well.
1: Yeah. Now, for those of you that don't know what celiac disease is, so let's just be honest, right? This was a very short question from Kelly, but her case is really complicated, right? Type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, thyroid problem. Uh, with the celiacs and the type 1 diabetes, you're always going to have a thyroid problem, anyways. Type 1 diabetics always have you know, thyroid problems to a certain extent. It's almost like a, it's almost like a given. But celiac disease, for those of you that don't know, it's becoming very popular, right? It's still a very rare problem. A lot of people think they have celiacs. They get tested for it by their doctor, but it is still the ones that actually have cel- full blown celiacs is still relatively a rare, a rare issue. Um, but that what that means is that they have a an actual intolerance to gluten. Uh, on the if we looked at the digestive tract, specifically the small intestine, there's little finger-like projection, little hair-like projections in your small intestine. What they call the microvilli. And the microvilli inside the digestive tract is how we absorb. It increases. This is where a lot of physiology stuff comes in. So just bear with me. Uh, the villi are these little uh, kind of. If, like, in your house, if you had a big long rug on the floor and you squished up the rug, so let's say the rug is like six feet long, right? You squished up the rug together to create a bunch of ups and, you know, kind of like a little bunch of ridges to that rug. And now that rug is only two feet long, you've increased the surface area of that rug, right? So now you could put a few more rugs in that same area because you squished the rug together, right? That's kind of what the digestive tract is like to increase the amount of um, space or the surface area that your body has to absorb food. So if someone that has celiacs, uh, they consume gluten for whatever reason, uh, and we're not going to get into that right now, but for whatever reason, the immune system, that gluten starts to create damage on on those microvilli, those little hair finger-like projections on the small intestine, and they start to erode. And now that's where they, if it's really bad enough, then they start having malabsorption problems and they can literally become malnourished because their body can't absorb any more nutrients. Not to mention, like you said earlier, uh, the connection between that and Hashimoto's. Uh, Some people would even say that Hashimoto's is kind of like the... The, you know, like the 21st century celiacs. It's like a, you know, they're almost kind of like the same thing in some respects, at least from an immune system standpoint.
0: And which is, you know, one of the biggest keys with Hashimoto's is to eliminate gluten. Like, uh, and not all Hashimoto's patients eliminate gluten, but it really is a good idea to eliminate gluten because, like you said, because of that immune response, eliminating gluten reduces down the Hashimoto's immune response. But then, you know, like, like you had mentioned, in anybody that had, you know, has celiacs, they want to eliminate gluten for that digestive system as well. So definitely in, in Kelly's case, we can, you know, more than likely, yeah, even that 2.3 for that free T3, I'm surprised it's even at 2.3. I would have thought it might even be a little bit lower. Yeah,
1: sure. But, you know, to be honest, we, uh, you know, not to give her any credit necessarily or whatever, doctors, whatever, but we see that those kind of low end normal numbers all the time. And conventionally, as long as the number is within the reference range, low end normal, high end normal, they don't even care. As long as it's normal, then it's considered to be, you know, um, then it's you don't do anything about it. Uh, now, if they were going to do something about it, let's say, like you uh, said earlier, right now her number's at 2.3, so she's at the bottom end of that reference range. We would look at that, and immediately, one, we would understand with the celiacs and with the type 1 diabetes that there's you know there's a big issue going on, so it's not surprising that her thyroid numbers are, are going to be suboptimal on our, our job or what we try to do with them uh, is to optimize those numbers, not just make them normal, right? We would look at that 2.3 as being an abnormal number, even though it is still technically normal um, in our mind. Uh, and of course, in the, in the patient's mind, it is an abnormal number because she feels a certain way. Now, she says she feels so depleted that I think a lot of that has to do with the type 1 diabetes, right? Fairly common. And uh, like I said earlier, They don't, they focus way too much on the blood sugar, right? Which we also don't know what her blood sugar range is, but the goal is to lower the blood sugar, but really it should be at the same time managing. It should be all about the insulin management because a lot of type one diabetics because of the treatment become insulin resistant because of how much insulin they're, they're injecting. So I can't stress that enough. Uh, that it's not just about the blood sugar and taking as many units you know I had a patient in the in the past was taking up to 300 units of insulin a day uh, which for those of you that are not type 1 diabetic and don't take insulin don't understand that is a tremendous amount uh, and over the course of many months we were able to get that number down by you know almost 10 times that is how you effectively manage type 1 diabetes because you can't I'd say this, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, you can't necessarily get someone that's type one diabetic off of insulin. Sometimes you can actually, they can start, their pancreas can actually start producing it, which will bring up another, you know, another uh, strategy for autoimmune disease here in a second. But the goal is for the most part is to get them using as as little insulin as possible. And then the thyroid function will come up almost on its own. But uh, her doctor says it's not treatable. It is absolutely treatable.
0: Yeah, definitely like you're saying with the lifestyle. I mean, there's lots of things you can do lifestyle to help her insulin management and also help other people in our, you know, in our country or our listeners about insulin. Cause I think insulin resistance is probably the least diagnosed condition in our entire country. Like most doctors don't even really know what that is. But it is. It's a consequence of, you know, the high glycemic foods and the processed foods that people have eaten for many, many years. And then it just causes them to have insulin resistance. And then you see the low free T3. And you, of course, want to fixate on the low free T3, which we want to work on. But at the same time, we want to work on everybody's insulin management.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, now, from a, her, she's being told that her doctor says it's not treatable, um, but we would absolutely say that it is. And in a case like this, because of the celiacs, because of the type 1 diabetes, um, we would put them on a compounded thyroid prescription. Okay? And what that means is we would determine a dose based on kind of what her numbers show, maybe what she's already taking. And we can assume, we shouldn't say it, but we can assume that she's taking T4 monotherapy. She's taking Synthroid, Livoxyl, or Levothyroxine. She's taking one of those three medications. More than likely, she's probably at 100 plus micrograms 100, 125, 150. Uh, And again, with those two things kind of the celiacs and the type 1 diabetes complicating the situation we can assume that she's probably on a really high dose of one of those uh, of one of those three medications i would say that it's to be honest it's probably 150 plus wouldn't you agree
0: yes yeah, so what what dr mackey's saying here is she's basically on t4 monotherapy which levothyroxine is t4 synthroid is levothyroxine t4 or levoxyl which i'm not even sure that's even um, as prescribed as much anymore but yeah Absolutely, because of the digestive issues with the celiacs and then most likely um, Hashimoto's and then also with the type 1 diabetes. She's definitely on well over 100 micrograms of some kind of T4 monotherapy. And like Dr. Mackey was saying is we would switch her to a compounded T4, T3. So what we find is Synthroid, levothyroxine, it's instant release. So it goes into your system right away into the bloodstream. It stimulates that thyroid-stimulating hormone, the TSH, to drop down. So then people automatically assume like, oh, your thyroid level's great because your TSH is in normal range. But when you switch someone to a compounded T4, T3, we like to do a sustained release. So you actually don't have this instant release right into your system. You have a little bit more sustainability throughout the 24-hour period, where in particular, most most for is that free T3. Because some doctors, um, like Dr. Maggie had said earlier, is they might prescribe Cytomel or an instant release T3 uh, medication. A lot of doctors really don't do this anymore because it's not very healthy. It's a little hard on the on the heart, and you can't increase it up very high because if you go too high on an instant release cytomel or a T3 only medication, it can, you know, it can cause a lot of anxiety, heart palpitations, heart racing, that kind of thing. So, but when you switch it and do it as a compound, as a sustained release, it doesn't have that effect on the cardiovascular system, on the heart as anxiety. It has more of a slow release throughout the entire day. So you you can actually raise someone's free T three levels without compromising or having any, you know, negative side effects as long as you're, you know, doing the blood work and keeping an eye on their numbers.
1: Yeah, right so in her case our goal with someone like her now granted we we would agree that her situation is pretty complicated you know so uh, we would love to see it if her free T3 level got to be about from a compounded prescription if it got to be about 3.0 as a minimum right 3.2 would be great 3.5 would be amazing she would probably feel really good she'd have some energy finally for a change uh you know she would probably noticeably feel the difference uh, and that's because you're adding in a hormonal Component that she's never had before, right? She, and you can absolutely take the the T3 as a prescription. That's what the compounded thyroid is all about. Now, another idea that is, you know, fairly popular these days is using uh, what they call natural thyroid or desiccated thyroid. Armor, nature thyroid, NP thyroid, WP thyroid. These are porcine-based thyroids, so they come from little pigs. And uh, we would not necessarily recommend that for someone that has celiac's, you know, or really for someone that has Hashimoto's. You could do it, you know, whatever. But the compounded is a lot cleaner, right? So you're taking away that uh, that foreign protein from a different, you know, from a different, you know, from from an animal, and it doesn't have all the binders and fillers and excipients um, that those commercial prescriptions do. That's why we, you know, even though those desiccated thyroids still have the T4 and the T3, which is the point. Um, we still think that the compounded thyroid, and because her case is complicated, the compounded thyroid allows us to independently change those two hormones. The T4 can be raised or lowered independently of the T3. The T3 can be raised or lowered to match this, the, the patient and how they're feeling and what their numbers show over time.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Porcine or a pig thyroid has a four to one ratio of four micrograms of T4 to one microgram of T3, and you can't you can't change it. So sometimes if somebody is a little sensitive to the T3, and also those porcine thyroids are instant release, so it goes into your system quite quickly. So sometimes that that T3 component can cause people a little bit of some side effects, where with the compound, you can do any dose you could even possibly think about. And that way we can start a little, especially in Kelly's case, she hasn't had T3 probably in a, ever in a really long time, is you can start off lower on that T3 and work your way up so that her body and her system can get used to it. So that's one aspect. But I do have to say that we do have a lot of Hashimoto's patients that just really love their nature thyroid, that really love their porcine thyroid. And, and they do really great on it. So I don't want to, you know, bag on it and say don't use it. It really depends on the individual. You know, some people do great on one particular medication and some people do great on another. But in Kelly's case or in people that do have low levels of free T3, using utilizing a compounded T3 is a great idea and on a completely separate note is... I actually get quite a few patients where their T4 is normal, but their free T3 is low. So we may not not even treat that T4 level, but just treat the T3 level.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, And as we uh, said earlier, uh, that conversion is happening in the liver. 60% is happening in the liver. 20% happens by the bacteria in the colon, the the microbiome. Uh, And then 20% happens roughly the peripheral tissues, so the muscles, uh, things like that. So in a type 1 diabetic, exercise is critical, right? Exercise is very important because exercise is a way to lower blood sugar, Without needing insulin to get blood sugar into the cells, exercise and specifically strength training exercise, because as we've talked about in other podcasts, too much cardiovascular exercise can actually make blood sugar management worse. Uh, too much when you're doing you know running or jogging or this or that whatever, uh, it actually can raise cortisol, which then then raises your blood sugar. We need to get into that right now, where strength training over time makes the body more efficient at utilizing insulin, and then you can you, you, your body needs less and less of it over time. So from that respect, type 1 and type 2 diabetes... In some ways, the goal is exactly the same. You're trying to get the body to produce less in type two. And in type one, you're trying to use as little as possible, but still keep your blood sugars normal. A normal blood sugar for a type one diabetic, you know, for for most of us that are not diabetic, usually a fasting blood sugar should be less than 100, okay, 99 or 99 or less, uh, and then postprandial, uh, you know, up to about 140, give or take. Uh, but to be honest, depending on the type one diabetic, the goal is you might not really ever be able to get those numbers that low, um, but you want to have as little fluctuation throughout the day as possible. So if their numbers go from let's say 50, uh, 100 to 150 or 125 to 175, and then over time those numbers start to trend downwards, um, but you're having you're not having these huge swings from you know a blood sugar of 125 to 250 or 300 and then back down. That's the part that um, causes some issues over time. You want to keep those blood sugars nice, that blood sugar range nice and and narrow. And that's why type one diabetics they have to test their blood sugar. Okay, they have to test it all the time. Uh, you know because if you take too Much insulin, right? That could be potentially fatal um, by taking. If your blood sugar is not high enough, you take too much insulin. That's where it gets really complicated with the type 1 diabetes. Uh, and that's why being very specific with how much you're taking, not taking too much, uh, so that can be managed over time. You know, that's uh, it's, I, you know, I feel bad for Kelly because her situation is really complex. And I could see why she'd run into some problems when you're trying to fine tune that because it's. Let's just, you know, it's fair to say that conventionally, it's not about fine-tuning anything. It's just about making sure things are, quote-unquote, normal, but not not to the level that it could be in, in a case like hers.
0: And it not to, you know beat a dead horse here, but really that insulin and that cortisol has such a huge effect on that T3 that, yeah, we're talking about medications and, you know, really good medications that would work for Kelly. But at the same time, that lifestyle management with, like Dr. Mackey said, is doing the weight-bearing exercise as opposed to the cardiovascular, intense cardiovascular exercise, that's going to help raise up that T3. And honestly... For the general population, even those that don't have diabetes, doing more weight-bearing as opposed to the cardiovascular exercise is going to help raise up that T3. A caloric restriction, when people go on diets and starve themselves, that immediately drops a free T3. Like, I can look at someone's blood work and pretty much tell if they're not eating because, you know, that T3 is unusually low. And then you find out, of course, well, I'm on a diet or they have, you know, issues with, you know, with not eating enough. So definitely, you know, that, that blood sugar, that insulin, that management has such an impact on that free T3.
1: Yeah, right. I think that kind of gets uh, overlooked a lot. Uh, So someone's gaining weight. Weight gain is associated with being hypothyroid, but where did the weight gain come from? Is it, you know, is it the cart before the horse or the chicken before the egg, that insulin sensitivity and thyroid function, and you really notice it in someone that is a type 1 diabetic. That's where it really begins to manifest and uh, what's going on there. Very complicated, lots of stuff, you know, whatever. Type 1 diabetes, as I said earlier, is only about 10% of the diabetes cases, so it's not necessarily that common. Now, one thing I did mention a little while ago as a strategy for autoimmune disease in general, or in some ways you could even say not even autoimmune, but immune system issues in general. Because she's got celiacs, maybe has Hashimoto's, she has type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is considered to be an autoimmune condition where your body produces antibodies that basically destroy what are called the, the beta cells. In the I, uh, I think they're called the I, I, uh, islets of Langerhans uh, in the pancreas, uh, the beta cells in the pancreas. So the pancreas, because of the autoimmune problem, stops producing insulin. Okay. That's why they end up having to take it. So a strategy that we use for a lot of these types of situations is what's called low dose naltrexone. We're going to probably talk more about that um, uh, now, nowadays doctors are using it from cancer to Hashimoto's to, you know, uh, MS to lupus to, uh, you know, a lot of different, you know, immune system based problems and having a really good bit of success. And we would consider a low dose naltrexone, um, to be a really good treatment option because it has a very good upside, meaning that it has benefit. Um, it's affordable, it's a relatively a cheap medication and it has a very low, um, if really kind of non-existent level, uh, list of side effects to it. That makes anything a good treatment, whether it's a drug or a supplement or anything. Um, that makes it a really good thing to consider in a case like this.
0: Yeah, we use low-dose naltrexone in a lot of Hashimoto's patients. And and as we're finding out now with autoimmune disease, I mean, I've, I've seen it work really well for rheumatoid arthritis, for any uh, connective tissue autoimmune disease. It works really, really good. So we'll definitely talk more about low-dose naltrexone in the future. And if you're, you know, And honestly, if you're Hashimoto's, a lot of Hashimoto's patients know about LDN. They also abbreviate it LDN. But, you know, other doctors and conventional doctors don't quite know about it yet, but I do see on the forefront that there'll be more information on that. So if you are Googling, you know, because everybody loves Google, I love Google too, is you can Google low-dose naltrexone. Now, if you Google naltrexone, you'll get a whole different sheet and pages and pages and pages of what naltrexone is because naltrexone is a different type of, is used is the same medication, but it's used in a very higher dose to help with alcoholism and opiate addiction. But because naltrexone had been used for so many years, we had all this data to look at that naltrexone was helping people that had autoimmune disease. So now finding out that using very low, low doses in a particular way of uh, method of taking it seems to help people with the autoimmune. So I really think with, um, you know, with Kelly, with her celiac disease, especially that LDN could have a tremendous effect.
1: Yeah, right. And with a you know kind of a quick little uh, you know summary of how it works, when you take the, you take it at night before you go to sleep, uh, medication you know lasts throughout the night. When it wears off, you get actually this surge to what they call opioid growth factor, which is really uh, an endorphin. Um, that that surge of that growth factor actually stimulates immune function. Okay now in some situations, especially autoimmune disease, even certain cancers, I'm using it right now with a couple of patients that actually have some blood cancers, leukemia and such, and their numbers are getting better. Um, a lot of times that is considered to be counter to stimulate the immune system seems to be counterproductive. Like that's going to make the situation worse. But in reality, when you stimulate the immune system in the way that we'd like to do it or other functional medicine doctors like to do that, it always improves, and low dose naltrexone, like I said, is becoming very popular. So there's some research out there. If you find some negative opinions about low dose naltrexone, keep looking because there is a lot of really good information, and doctors around the world are using low dose naltrexone um, with a you know with a good bit of patient success. And that you don't need to have double blind, placebo controlled anything. That kind of uh, anecdotal. Directly from the doctor, you know what he's seeing on the front lines. Just like you and I, we don't do double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, but we are—we're our patients are basically research all the time, right? And that a case study of a successful case, whether you're using low-dose or compounded thyroid or female hormones or whatever it is, a successful case is still a research study. So as they call that in the research world, an N of one, N is like the population. An N of one, which is a case study, is still, in my opinion, sometimes the best type of research. One, it's easy, easily reproducible. And we've gotten, you know, over the years, we've just gotten hundreds and hundreds of cases like that, that, hey, this worked. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. And, you know, the, the results, they're not always perfect, right? That's you know, the, people are individuals. But when it comes to things like this, you don't always need a double-blind placebo controlled study to make a treatment effective. And a lot of times, some of the treatments that we're talking about, there is no double-blind placebo-controlled studies because I just had a conversation, almost not an argument, but a little discussion uh, with a patient the other day. She wanted to see research and I'm like, well, sorry, that research just doesn't exist because Uh, research only exists when there's money to be made from that research. And if there's no no, no money to be made directly from that research or indirectly from that research, nobody is going to pay for that research. So sometimes right from the get-go, if there's research about something, let's say some kind of a drug that you get at Costco or Walgreens, if there's a lot of research about that particular drug, that means there's money be made from that drug, which is why the research exists in the first place. And so right off the bat, research is already skewed. Uh, so we have to keep that in consideration when we're trying to evaluate things and always wanting this double blind placebo controlled evidence that something is effective, which is what the conventional medical medical community wants to see all the time. If there's not that gold standard study, then it doesn't really you know, then it can't be safe or it doesn't work. And that's not really the case. You know, there's plenty of, you know, anecdotal reports from doctors, brilliant doctors from around the world that use these types of therapies just like we do. And that's partly why we use them because the things that we use and employ, one, you don't learn it in a medical school. Two, you use those things because other doctors have had success with it. And then the whole trend continues and you're able to help more and more people that way. Um, that's, you know, that's, uh, I think that's great. Everyone benefits from that from that type of a perspective. But like I said, there's no double-blind placebo-controlled studies. And sometimes that becomes a sticking point, uh, you know, in the in the medical community when there's no research to back something up, so to speak.
0: Which is so unfortunate, too, because when you're looking at any, you know, individual or patient or, you know, and Kelly is, it's not like, oh, here's some research for a prescription that's going to fix it. One prescription is just going to fix it all. It's, you know, you you really have to put it, you know, take the individual and, in. Work it collectively so that we're like with Kelly. You know, we're talking about her nutrition, we're talking about her medications, we're talking about her lifestyle, about exercise, we're talking about her immune system and her autoimmune diseases, and you know, incorporating low dose naltrexone along with looking at her thyroid medication and possibly trying to incorporate some compounded. So we're looking at it from a multifactorial process as opposed to, oh, yeah, here's this medication you can take and go be happy. It just, life just doesn't work that way.
1: No very rare now granted we use medications a lot right we prescribe them but we also like you just said we also you know employ some dietary things some lifestyle things some supplementation things that is where you create some synergy that's where you're able to create some lasting change as opposed to here's a pill off you go uh and you and hope for the best right and that's that's unfortunately that that's how medicine is is done these days but that's why people are listening to what we're talking about and i know health podcasts across you know in general are so popular because people are desperately looking for answers and more information because people know they have access to the internet, right? They know the information's out there. Uh, so they just want to, you know, they just want to keep looking. And I honestly, I, I commend people for, cause I don't think that that really has ever been done before. One, the internet has only been around for what, 20 years, you know, 25 years. Uh, you never really had a resource at your fingertips that you could actually look information up I and mean, whatever the doctor said, that's just what you did. Nowadays, people are not taking that necessarily so much at face value. They're, you know, they're being their own advocates. Uh, and they are you know they are petitioning, you know, they are campaigning for themselves you know, as they should, right? They certainly should. So hopefully this will give uh, Kelly some ideas, some things to think about for everyone else that is um, dealing with low. And granted, hers is a very specific kind of unique situation, but not one that is uncommon with the celiacs, or the type one di- diabetes, but from a T3 perspective, a uh, free T3 perspective only, um, that, you know, level that she has and what to do about it, something that we see almost every day. So, if your doctor doesn't test it or encourage him to test your free T3, if he says that it's not treatable, then it's time to find another doctor because it is easily, uh, but don't expect your current doctor, if he doesn't understand the whole free T3 free T3 idea, don't expect that he's going to know how to treat it. You, that means you have to find someone that knows how to treat that. Endocrinologists typically don't. An internal medicine doctor is typically not. A general practitioner is typically not, um, but there are doctors, plenty of doctors out there that know how to do that. You just have to find one in your area or one that, one that knows how to do that. And it's not, in 2018, it's not that hard to find. So Dr. Davidson, anything else to add for this one?
0: No, no, this was great. And and thank you, Kelly, for taking the time to give us your question so we could possibly help you and definitely everybody listening.
1: Yeah. So uh, until next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. And
0: I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the progress your health podcast if you like what you've heard on this podcast please give us a positive review on itunes this allows us to spread our message grow our audience and help more people around the world for more information visit our website at progressyourhealth.com